at 12.30. We're going to get started. Welcome everyone. Hope you had a great week since last week. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if we have any first-timers, but if we do have any first-timers, we're really glad you're here. We do this every week. Ruth's Chris provides the food and the setting. I provide the teaching. You guys keep the seats warm. So we appreciate it. That's right. We uh, we provide, Bruce provides this as a service to you guys, but the donation box goes to the ladies in the back that actually prepare and bring the food out every week. So if you appreciate the food, then throw in the, in the box what you think it's worth. And that's a way for us to bless them for serving us as well. You know the scripture puts a high value on people that serve others. It's kind of, it's kind of what Jesus is thing. So we want to honor that. We're in Leviticus 19. <clears throat> Leviticus 19 is the heart of the Holiness Code. The Holiness Code is the heart of Leviticus. And Leviticus is the heart of the Torah. So we are at the center of the center of the Torah. And Leviticus 19 is probably the most all-encompassing chapter in Leviticus when it comes to what God desires of his people in terms of a society in covenant with him that he made at Mount Sinai. God is, as we said, he's crafting a society with Israel that is going to be living in the midst of and surrounded by their pagan neighbors, and they are to be a light to their pagan neighbors by being different, or the word is being holy. So holiness for Israel consists of being different in so many ways, but not being closed off. There's a difference between being holy and getting in a holy huddle, all right? The holy huddle is what Christians do when they just get frustrated and scared of the world and they just want to withdraw. The holy huddle is what the people at Qumran did in the first century who were sick of the temple and sick of the Romans and sick of society. So what they did, they went out in the desert, they made their own society, had their own rules, and they died and were completely unheard of until the 1940s when the Dead Sea Scrolls were dug up. In contrast, Jesus' followers were told to be holy, quoting from Leviticus, Peter told them to be holy, for the Lord is holy, and sent into the empire, into the Roman Empire, into the Jewish synagogues, into places all over the world, and that's where they were go, to go to be salt and to be light. Like Jesus had said, you don't light a lamp and then put a basket over it. Right? The whole purpose of light is to spread and dispel the darkness. The whole purpose of salt is to permeate and sustain and preserve from decay. So even in the Old Testament, that's what God's people were doing. And that's the irony, that's paradox, because God called them to be separate in so many ways from the nations around them. And that's what this holiness code is all about. It started in chapter 18 with do not do the things that the nations who I am sending you into their midst have been doing. Because that's one of the reasons I'm judging them. And it's going to end that way. The next chapter, chapter 20, is going to end with the punishment for doing the things that the nations did that God is driving out uh, in, in judgment in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. So God is, is bookending his call to Israel to be a holy society with warnings to not assimilate the practices, particularly in terms of worship and sexuality, of the surrounding nations. But in the midst of that, in the midst of what you're not to do, he gives them a whole chapter about what you're to do, what you're to be like as a people. 
And the goal is, remember, everything ties back. Everything in all of these books of the Bible tie back to the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. That through you, through your seed, your offspring, your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we see that that's the plan of God. That's what my favorite uh, current living biblical scholar, Christopher Wright, wrote a book on it uh, called The Mission of God. And then a follow-up called The Mission of God's People. I could not recommend strongly enough that you buy and read both of those books because they're incredible display, uh, a, a walkthrough of the whole Bible and the overall mission that God is on through the Old Testament and how it culminates in the New Testament and the Gospels and then ultimately in Revelation. It's just the best work of biblical theology that's ever been written in the English language. And, and the way, if we see the Bible that way, as what is the mission of God, then when we're reading in Leviticus and we get tempted to get bogged down in these laws and these rules, we realize, hey, let me step back for a minute. Let me set these laws and these rules within their context, not just historical context, but within their covenantal context to see that what God is doing at a bigger picture. And so we started that last week by looking at how he begins chapter 19 when he says, speak to the entire assembly of Israel, everyone, priest to layperson. Speak to all of them. And he grounds the command, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. It's exactly the, the way Peter starts his letter, 1 Peter 1.16. He'll start it that way, by quoting this chapter. And then it goes on in 19 to, to sort of bring out or extrapolate on all of the Ten Commandments in one way or another. It, it, it puts the, so if the Ten Commandments were like the, the overall foundational ethic that God wanted his people to be guided by, like the Bill of Rights, um, the, 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 the Declaration of Independence, whatever you want to call it, the founding document, then the Holiness Code is sort of like the case law or the amendments or the things that flesh out how that's going to work in day-to-day -day life. And so it starts and it covers the family. It covers interpersonal relationships. It covers business relationships. It covers uh, worship, relationship between people and God. Last week, we talked about the, the horizontal and the vertical must uh, both be present. Love for God and love for neighbor is the heartbeat of all Old Testament ethics, as Jesus said. So then he goes on to give these series of commands, and you can hear the echoes of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments in these. Each of you must honor or respect his mother and father. You must observe my Sabbaths, for I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make gods of cast metal for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. So an idol could be anything kind of carved or fashioned together. And a, and a god of cast metal would be usually like they take a wood carving and then either pour or, or hammer gold plating or some kind of precious metal around it it's rather than just making it of solid gold. That's how you could have the golden calf and how it could also be burned in fire and turned to ashes. You know, metal doesn't turn to ashes when you burn it, but metal overlaying wood absolutely does. And so that's usually what it was in the Old Testament. You take a piece of stick, a stone, or something, and you coat it, and you, you, you work it, and you create it with all the care as a way of dedicating yourself to the God that that idol represents. And then you care for it, and you venerate it. And, and that was a way of you maintaining some semblance of control or connection with the beings in the divine realm that you wanted to do stuff for you, that you wanted on your side. And God's saying, no, the foundation of God's ethic in the Old Testament is 
you don't get to do anything that earns your merit in his eyes. Israel never is allowed to attain to holiness or attain to God's favor. Israel began by receiving God's favor undeservedly. He brought them out of Egypt. He saved them. And that's the word used in the Old Testament from what happened at the Exodus. He saved them before he ever gave them the law. The law came as a response to the salvation that they've already experienced. So the worship of God comes as a response to the action of God in the world to save and to redeem his people. It's never the other way around. Human worship is the other way around. You do the worship, that gets the God on your side. Godly worship in Scripture is the complete opposite. God is on your side, therefore, worship Him as such. It's a completely different mindset. Uh, verse 5, when you sacrifice a fellowship offering, and this is the one offering that we looked at earlier in Leviticus that, that was eaten together by everyone as a meal. This is the communal offering. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf, which we've already covered. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned up. If any of it's eaten on the third day, it's impure and will not be accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because he's desecrated what's holy to the Lord, and that person will be cut off from his people. So this goes back to the earlier chapters of Leviticus, and you can watch the video if you want to recap. But it's basically saying this communal meal is not a time for you to, to prepare your food and hoard it. This is not a time for you to just take it like, oh, it's just any other meal. i got some leftovers today and tomorrow and the next day. No, it's a sacred meal. It's a sacred meal because it's a sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice because it is, it is participating in the fellowship with God that takes place at God's table. So what it's saying is you need to eat it on that day because it's, it's sacrifice, it's worship. And if you can't eat it all on that day, because, you know, like maybe a family's smaller and they can't literally eat a whole ram or goat uh, on that day, then you can eat it on the next day as well. It could, it could be an overnight thing. It could be a celebration. But after that, you, you need to burn the rest of it. Give it the rest of it to the Lord by fire. Because it's not just a way for you to get cold cuts for the week. Right? It's not just leftover Thanksgiving sandwich meat. Right? This is, this is specifically holy. So you're to keep it. So this is a commandment that touches in the realm and their worship, they're to be different than the nations around them. Verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the immigrant. I am the Lord your God. This is a fascinating commandment completely flies in the face of any agrarian society's well-being. If you're a farmer, your livelihood is your crop. And therefore, you want to do everything you can to increase the yield of your crop as much as you can. So when you go and you go through the field or you send your workers through the field to glean, to, 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 to bring first do the harvest, to get the stuff off of the stalk, then there's going to be a lot that drops. There's going to be stuff that falls down. There's going to be things, bushes that they may miss. So then you would naturally go through a second time and make sure you pick up all the pieces that were missed because each one of those pieces is money in your pocket to feed your family. What God is specifically telling his people not to do is in this case something that would just seem like good common sense economic practice. And God's specifically commanding them, do not do that. Build into your 
crops, into your economy, a way for those who don't have what you have, which is the land and the crops and the workers, to be able to come and work themselves to survive. We see this later in the story of Ruth and Naomi, and that's how part of how Ruth and Naomi survived was going through. And, and, and it, it's akin to, you know, if you like, okay, so I come from South Georgia. There's a lot of pecan trees everywhere in my family. I grew up, and you know, you, you pecans fall and they fall all over the ground. You, there's machines I think that shake the trees, and the pecans fall. It's time to harvest, whatever. But after they're done, there's a lot of pecans in the ground. You know, some are good, some are not so good, but they're they're everywhere. And what, what this would be saying is if you're a pecan farmer, you don't go back and, and get them all. Don't, don't harvest at all. Specifically leave some. Leave the edge of your field unharvested. Un, uh, if you have a fruit tree, olive tree in Israel, the way they harvest, throw out big nets under the trees and then they'll sticks, they'll hit the trees or they'll shake the branches or they'll do this and they'll all fall into the nets, leaves, twigs, olives, everything. Then they'll gather them all up, take them to the that's how it works. And what this commandment is saying is leave some. Go against the temptation you have to be economically responsible in to, down to the final uh, point in the ledger for the purpose of those who don't have what you have. Now, there's two things that people do with this. When they see that the, the concept behind this, the actual law applies to agriculture. But the foundational ethic can apply to any way that we make a living. There are two errors that people do when they come to passages like this in the Bible. The first error they do is to say, well, it just applies to agriculture, and I'm a car dealer, or I'm an insurance salesman, or I'm whatever, whatever, uh, so I, this doesn't apply to me. Well, all of the law, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture applies to us. So that's one error. But the other error people do is they gravitate to this passage, and they make it like this unqualified call to social justice and giving everything away to the poor and 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 use this to extra extrapolate from this to prop up whatever particular social program or government program that they want to encourage. And that's also a mistake as well. Because this passage doesn't say harvest your field and then give some of it to the poor. Very small but important distinction here. It says, harvest, but leave some for the poor to come and gather. Implied in that is a dignity of work for the poor. There is an element, and this is where this is where the conservatives will jump on an amen. <laughs> the liberals will jump on an amen, the leaving some for the poor. The conservatives will jump on the, yeah, but they gotta work for it. Well, it's a balance. It's a balance especially in politicized issues like this. But there is a dignity in work for people, even if they don't have money. I'll tell you a story that I read. My friend, uh, Justin, he's, he's a fighter. He's a, like MMA fight. He used to fight in the UFC. Now he fights in an organization called Bellator. And he also for, uses his winnings from his fights to dig water wells in the Congo for the pygmy tribes that he has befriended. They've actually adopted him like legally adopted him as one of their tribe, uh, the pygmies in the Belgian Congo. And it's funny because they're like four or five and he's six five and you know big beard and blonde hair and everything. Uh, I brought his book in before some of you may remember me talking about Justin. 
Uh, but we got together in Charlotte a couple weeks ago with his wife and got to chat and kind of catch up on ministry stuff. Well, in his book, and, and you should read his book, it's called Fight for the Forgotten. I highly recommend to get a copy. Fight for the Forgotten. And God got a hold of him, turned his life upside down, sent him basically on a lifelong quest to go fight for these people who have been forgotten, which are the pygmies in the Congo. The way he does that, the primary means they do that is through procuring land for the people so that they don't have to be slaves to the other tribes and can have their own land to work, and then drilling sustainable water, like clean water wells, because 5,000 babies die every day in the Congo of waterborne illnesses. And so he's literally trying to do this to, to save these lives. I mean, he's buried some of these babies with his own hands. So he's like, this is, we got to stop this. So they do it with clean water. But in the book, he talked about how there was a charity that had uh, done the same kind of thing. They wanted to give water, and so they, they've gone in and they dug this really nice state-of-the-art water well. I mean, all you had to do was you know, you turn a lever and you've got water, just like what we have in our bathrooms. And they went back like a year later, and it was completely out of use because one part had broken, and there was and there was no no way to fix it out in the middle of the jungle. So it was this like you can try to help, but just giving the well didn't really do anything because they didn't give the means to continue the work that the well had started. Also, there was a village, she talks about in the book, where they had gone in and they had dug a water well. And they came back again to check on that one, and it was, the well was broken. It wasn't a mechanical thing that they, that they couldn't fix, but it was broken, and the people there just had kind of abandoned it. Because they had gone in and set up the well free of charge and just given them to you, and it was a great celebration. A few weeks later, it breaks. Eh, all right, no big deal. So the, the guy who he was, who was sort of mentoring him about how to go about this when you're going to start one of these organizations and really, really help people, not just do like photo ops, but really help people, he said, go back to, when you go to this village, tell the people, tell the village, we'll come and fix this well for a hundred American dollars. I think it was a hundred, something like that, it might have been a thousand. A huge amount of money for this incredibly poor village. And at first, when he was listening to the guy telling this, he was like, that's not, these people are poor. They can't afford, what do you mean? And the guy who was, had been doing this for years and, and sustained the war, he said, no, 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 no. They have to have ownership of this. If they scrap together their resources, if they get it together and actually really do some hard work, not that they're lazy, not that they're, they weren't at all, they had just never had the opportunity to actually participate in this kind of work. He said, if you, if they buy this well or pay to have it fixed, then you'll see how the community ensures that that thing doesn't break again. When it was just a handout, when it was just a gift, some kids playing on it, broke it, eh, no big deal. But you better believe when that whole village had to scrounge up a hundred bucks, which was like maybe a year's worth of work, that whole village took pride in that well and it didn't break again. So there is an implicit, and, and, and that to me is the heart of this, what, what God's doing in this section. Yes, it is a call for the rich, for the landowners, for those who have, to willingly and voluntarily provide for those who don't have. That is gospel, that is ethic, that is from Old Testament to New Testament, that's there. However, to balance it out, it is also... God building in provision for the people who don't have the means to be able to take part in the work 
that those who do have the means do as well. So in other words, they get to become laborers in the field, but they get to keep what they uh, bring in. So it's an inherent, it's a very, very, I think it's a, there's a huge principle in that because it instills dignity. It instills the thing that it's this, it, God's not about just blind handouts. Yes, the tithes were put in the storehouse and widows and orphans could come and take from them. Absolutely. People who were genuinely in need at times were given the handouts that they needed from priests who oversaw all of this. That's all part of it. But in general, this is how God wanted his people to provide for themselves with the things that he'd given them. This is, this is part of how he, he wanted to weave this into the, conscious of his, the consciousness of his people is to provide for them. So what does that look like today? I don't know. I don't know. It would depend on your line of work. It would depend on your resources. It would depend on what you're able to do, what you're comfortable to do. But there is a call in there to don't... God's not just giving a blind call to handouts, but he is giving a divine call to hand-ups. In other words, giving people a hand-up from the situation that they found themselves in in a way that may have an economic impact on you. That's very, very biblical. That's not liberal or conservative. That's just biblical. Uh, how it looks will differ. And people will differ. Politicians and social justice uh, advocates and activists will all differ on which cause, which organization, which program uh, captures the essence of this best. And that's okay. There can be differences and we'll disagree maybe on the means to carry it out. But the thing that should underlie all of it, there should be a common ground, is that everyone should be given what they need to do what God has called us to do, which is to, to, to work, to live, to create, to, to contribute whatever we can with whatever we've been given. Some of it's been a lot, some of it's been a little bit. But if everybody's doing that, then that's one of the main means by which all of God's people are provided for. So then he's going to go on to say, verse 11, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another, do not swear falsely by my name and thus profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So there's a call to honesty here. This is not just saying don't tell bold, blatant lies. This is saying don't deceive. Don't, don't be untruthful. Be honest. Be an honest person. It's amazing how easy it is to be dishonest in our everyday life and to rationalize. It's really easy to rationalize our dishonesty. Well, I didn't quite tell the truth because I wanted to do something else You know that, that this would have interfered with. Or, or, you know, I didn't, I, I, technically I didn't lie on my tax forms, but I, you know, like there's, there's ways that we can deceive ourselves. Now, what this is saying is more than just, again, more than just the individual commandments, God wants his people to be truthful. When you, when you don't swear by his, when you swear by God's name. You are basically saying, what I am saying is so true that it is vouched for by the Almighty. That's what to swear on the name of God means. And so what people would do, and Jesus got onto the leaders of his day, because by the time of Jesus, you know, 1,400 years later, people would say things like, 
if you swear on the name of God, it has to be true or you die. So don't swear on the name of God. Swear on the temple. Or swear by the gold in the temple. Because that's not quite as severe as swearing by the name of God. And, you, and therefore you are technically in danger of breaking one of the Ten Commandments, which is taking the word of God in the name of the bank. And Jesus came along and said, that's absolute ridiculousness. That is, don't, 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 and Jesus even says, don't even swear at all. Your yes should mean yes, and your no should mean no. All these elaborate oaths and things you feel you have to do, those are only for people whose word is not normally trusted. So be trustworthy in your doings. He goes on to say, verse 13, do not, and NIV says defraud, that's the word for oppress or exploit your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired hand overnight. So when people would go and work, you know, this, this is not, they did not have direct deposit back then. They were not withholding taxes. You worked in the morning, you got paid in the evening. You took that money home, you bought food for your family the next day, you did all that stuff, whatever. So people depended on their daily wages. Or if it was food, their daily bread. They needed that. So what he's saying, he's commanding, do not exploit people's labor. If you say, well, I'm not going to pay you today, I'll pay you tomorrow. They have to come back. They have no choice. Their family will starve if they don't come back and work. So they come back. They work all day. Well, we had something come up. I'll pay you tomorrow. You're getting, you're getting cheap labor. It's, it's, it's exploitative. Um, it's, it's a lot of what goes on in the world today around the world for modern slavery. People work in factories for pennies a day uh, and the promise that they'll get more in the future and they never do. So don't exploit. Don't defraud. Don't rob. Don't hold back wages. Verse 14. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. And what does it mean, curse the deaf? Okay, this is, this is the rabbis, the early rabbis read this as specifically talking about uh, making fun of people at their expense. If somebody's deaf, they can't hear you cursing them. Right? So you can say a lot of things, mean things, and they're, they're deaf, they won't hear it. And it's kind of a joke for everybody that can hear it. Or somebody's blind, hey, put something in front of them, watch them trip. Ha-ha, everybody gets a laugh. That's one of the ways that the rabbis extrapolated this into society. Was, but, it, but it's even more than that. What it's saying is don't do something that would hinder or exploit people's weaknesses. If someone's blind or someone's deaf, they can't hear you. So don't curse them. Don't, don't, don't speak behind their back, so to speak. Don't, if, they're, if they're blind, don't put something in their way. To, I mean, why would you put something in a person's way? To make them stumble. And they're blind. They can't see it. They stumble over it. Don't do that. Don't exploit the things about someone that make them vulnerable. And in this case, it's the example is the blind and the deaf. So, it, it, again, it's creating this, this concept, this type of society that God wants his people to be. The last one that we'll look at this week. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. I love this passage. Because you think it would say, in our culture it would say, it would start out by saying, do not show partiality to the rich. Right? In our society, who gets off with a slap on the wrist? The rich. 
you know, who, who can commit heinous crimes and not pay for it or not go to jail, or if they do, they go for a few months and then good behavior? The rich, the people that have the money to hire the good lawyers to lessen the sentence. You know, celebrities, athletes, rich kids from the suburbs, you know, all of these things that, that are in the news. So that, we, we all would amen that. Like, we all look at that and go, that's not fair. That's not just. But what it's also saying, by starting the way it does, is saying, don't automatically side with the poor either. Because poor people are just as capable of being dishonest cheats as rich people are. So, when you do justice, do justice. Impartiality. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor. You know, we live in a media society where we get to hear the trials and the news and everything. So before a trial even starts, we have a verdict that we want to see happen, usually, because of the way it's spun. If somebody goes to trial for something, oh, they're guilty. And then if they're not deemed guilty, then we just, ah, I can't believe they got off. That's, that shows a mindset of partiality. And what God's calling his people to do is, is to say, fight that tendency. Fight that tendency to show partiality to the poor, because they're poor, and so they deserve some justice, or to show favor to the rich, and saying, well, they're rich, and they can, they can reward me back if I bend the rules of justice a little bit. What God's saying is neither of that. Neither of that. Hold the balance of justice. God himself judges the hearts of all impartially. And so his call to Israel was always to be in the world what he is. We're out of time for today. We're going to finish up next week with the third part of chapter 19. We're spending, this, is the first, this is the only chapter, I think, in our history that we've done three weeks on a single chapter. Uh, but it's the heart of God's ethic for his people, so it's worth spending some time with uh, Come back next week. This Thursday, just by way of prayer request, if you want to, um, I'm having knee surgery the day after tomorrow. Uh, so I would appreciate some prayers for not only successful surgery, I'd like to wake up afterwards, uh, but also it, it, it won't affect this study, like I can teach on crutches, but it, for a while it, it's going to affect the other ministry I do, which is the, the teaching martial arts for the refugee kids um, uptown. So just pray that I'm able to heal quickly and in the meantime find some people that can help me teach those classes when I can't physically be on the mats. If you want to support any of that, uh, you, this study, anything, buy one of my resources. If you like to do this study, we'll do it with a small group. Uh, grab a copy of my book. I've only got one left. Uh, or you can donate always. Uh, some of you are so generous and you just come and, and slip me donations and things like that. And it's super, super appreciated, more than you'll know. Uh, so have a great week. If you want some seconds, there's plenty here, and we'll see you next week.